Emmaus Church is a church community delighting in Jesus together for the joy of Ankeny. We hope the following sermon brings you closer to the joy we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about us, please visit EmmausChurchAnkeny.com. Barbara is a bright woman in her early 30s. She is at my house, Brenda and I's house, for dinner. While sitting on our couch, her almost full glass of wine falls to the floor and shatters after I accidentally bump into her. I quickly apologize, and myself and a few others go grab paper towels, we grab the trash can to pick up the broken glass and do our best to clean up the red wine, the glass shards, and to try to get stuff soaked up out of, the, out of the rug so it doesn't stain. Barbara, however, stoops to the floor and begins attempting to reconstruct the glass. She positions herself in a manner that blocks others from helping, and rather than cleaning it up, she's asking for super glue and is quickly sizing up pieces and laying them out in order so she can put the glass back together. And I, rather confused and exasperated, say, Barbara, what are you doing? And dead serious, she looks up and says, I'm going to restore this glass and get all the wine back into it. That's what I'm doing. Now, everything in you thinks, even knows, that something is wrong with Barbara in this story. (laughs) Right? When things break like that, there's nothing left to do but to do what you can to pick up the pieces, clean up the mess as best you can, and move on. That's how how life works. That's, That's what we know. When your car breaks, you take it to the mechanic, get it cleaned up, move along. Or you take it to the car lot, turn it in, get a new one. When you lose your job, you do what you can to best clean up the mess, Find a new one. Move on. When your glass of wine breaks, you throw the glass in the trash, mop up the mess, get the shards off the floor, get a new glass of wine, and move on. That's, that's what you do. This is life. When you go through a breakup or a divorce, you clean up the mess, you move on. When a loved one dies, you clean up the mess, you move on. Are you tired of cleaning up messes and moving on in your life? As crazy as Barbara might appear in that silly parable, is there not something endearing and hopeful in her attempt to restore the original glass of wine? In fact, the only reason you don't find her attempts at restoration laudable and rational is because you reasonably judge it to be a waste of time and a waste of effort. And not just a waste of time and effort, but a waste of time that will allow that red wine to stain the carpet deeper than would have otherwise if you just moved on and cleaned up the mess. Or maybe cuts from the shards of glass. We might be tired of cleaning up messes and moving on, but the reality is that holding on to hope seems costly. When you hold on to hope, it makes you more vulnerable. It can make you look stupid if it doesn't pan out. You've held on to hope only to realize how much anxiety, time, and effort was just wasted because the inevitable happened anyway. Like a woman trying to pick up and piece back together a wine glass only to look dumb and then throw it in the trash anyway. 
For every person holding on to hope in a broken relationship, is there not a crowd of friends irritated? They're wasting their time. Just move on. Let them go. The text in Mark 16 is the story, essentially, of a broken wine glass that some ladies went to clean up, put in the trash, and move on from. That's what this is. But as they got there to clean it, they got there to move on, they learned it miraculously was restored, no wine in the rug, fully intact on the counter, ready to be enjoyed. This is a passage of, of good news. It's a, it's a passage that undoes all of the brokenness of the world. If you're tired of cleaning up messes, there is rest for your soul in this text. We don't find a broken glass of wine restored, but we find Jesus himself after having been killed by crucifixion, has been restored and brought back to life. He's no longer in the grave. There's, there's no moving on. There's no cleaning up a mess. There's no moving on. Jesus is alive. And so this morning, the final message that I believe that Mark has for us, that he wants us to hear from this, is this. Don't give up and move on. Go to Jesus for restoration. That is the message that he has for us here. Don't get the trash can. Don't clean up the mess. Don't accept defeat and death. Do not ready yourself to move on. Go to Jesus for restoration. He's alive. He is an end to all messes and all breaks. And he offers full restoration and is our living hope. So we're going to see two ways all of that comes out of this text. We're going to see in verses 1 and 2, giving up and going to the tomb. And then in verses 3 to 8, giving hope and going to Jesus. So we'll see those things come through our text. So first then, giving up and going to the tomb. In verses 1 and 2, we find ladies giving up and going to the tomb. For 15 chapters, we've watched the story of Jesus and his disciples as they've delivered people from sickness and brought the good news that God's just and gracious rule would topple the kingdoms of Satan and death and corruption and love and righteousness and grace would reign in its place. That's, this is what's been going on since chapter 1, the very beginning of Mark. Jesus and the disciples put on display the real hope that things could maybe be made right. They could, the messes could really be cleaned up and restored. The real justice and peace could be real. It appeared, for a moment even, that Barbara is the reasonable one in the story. And people bought in. Maybe not fully. Maybe not entirely. But they, they bought in. The disciples, they gave up their lives. They, they, they left their jobs aside. They left their families behind. They put themselves in poverty and danger. Crowds followed Jesus. The disciples, despite their ignorance and failures, they actually took on disciples of their own and were discipling and training people. There was a whole crowd of people following Jesus. And as they marched into Jerusalem watching Jesus riding into the city as a king being praised and worshipped, it seemed as if there was a coming resolution. It seemed as if finally, finally all the brokenness is going to be undone and be made right. But as Jesus had warned and said many times throughout the book of Mark, his kingdom would not come with ease. 
nor with a sense of elation or even really even a sense of victory. Instead, it would come through pain, it would come through suffering, rejection, even death. And despite the protests of the disciples, despite the profession of allegiance by Peter himself, not only did everyone turn against him and his kingdom appear to be a failed experiment, it was broken. And that's, that's what we find over the last couple of weeks. That everything's broken. All that hope was dashed. It was like the glass was three-quarters of the way put back together. And it's just, and now we've got to throw it. It's got to go in the trash. Now there's nothing but broken relationships. Everyone's splintered off like shards of glass strewn upon the floor, the blood of Jesus soaking into the desert floor, his body stuck in a cold, dead tomb to decompose, to rot and be forgotten as just another disappointing rabble-rouser that Rome dispatched to keep their sense of peace in the region. So when we get to chapter 16, what is there to do? What is the reasonable thing to do? It all fell apart. The bloody, horrible, murderous end. Now, what do we do with all this glass at our feet? That's what's in the minds of these ladies in chapter 16. It's all come to an end. They didn't, they didn't go to that tomb that day expecting to see Jesus raised from the dead. They went there to clean up the mess and move on. That's what they were doing. And we see that in, in verse 1. They brought spices to anoint Jesus, and in verse 2, they go to the tomb. They're going to the tomb, accepting the defeat of hope. That's what, that's what they're doing. They're, they're accepting defeat. He's dead, and now there's nothing more to do than to clean up and move on. So they did what all do in their culture to clean up the mess of death. This is what everybody did in that culture, to clean up the mess of death. They went out after the Sabbath was over, that Saturday night, they went out, they bought spices in the evening, and then the first light, right there early in the morning, they went out to the tomb to do what was customary. And custom in that day, they did not bury dead in caskets like we do. They, don't, they, don't have, they didn't have graveyards like ours or with caskets. And only the rich had their own graves in, in those days, the very, very wealthy but typically, a moderately wealthy family, you would buy a tomb, and it would be a large cavernous, like, like a cave almost, and it would house your whole family. You, every, you'd put multiple bodies in the same grave. This, is, this was common. This was the way it was done. Now, for those who were poor, at best, you would be put into a communal tomb, so you might be buried next to... Several, there might be several different families in one tomb for the, for the poor. So it was important, it was really important, not only for the sake of honoring the person who had passed, but it was basically just a matter of basic respect. Don't let your dead loved one stink up the joint, right? If, you're, if your dead family member is decomposing and John, your neighbor, has got an aunt that he needs to put in there, don't make him smell your dead decomposing family member. And so what they would do is they would go out and they would buy spices and perfumes and they would pack their bodies with these spices and anoint their bodies with these spices and perfumes 
in order to push down the smell of decomposition and make it a little bit less disgusting if another family had to go in there while they're mourning the death of their loved one. So this is why they went out immediately after Sabbath. This is why they went out so early that next morning. It says they, uh, and they, the, they went out that Saturday after sundown in, in verse 1 to buy the spices. Verse 2, they went straight away to the tomb early in the morning. They're going to clean up the mess of Jesus' defeat, and they need to get there quickly because he's already decomposing and stinking. And so they need to get there quickly. The evidences of sin, the pain of death, the ruinous effects of Satan and his kingdom, they bring in not only a darkness in these first opening verses of chapter 16, they bring in a very sad and ominous busyness. These ladies are busy. They're cleaning. Cleaning up the mess. Scurrying about to make the best of things in the midst of a horrible circumstance so everyone can just move on. So I ask you this morning, is that what life is? Moving on, giving up on real hope, just making the best of it? Is that, is that, is that, is that what we've got? Is that your disposition before parenting? Do you maybe tend to feel that way at times in your marriage? Is that how you feel about your job? Maybe, maybe you feel that way about politics. Is that how you feel about maybe some of your friends? Maybe the way you feel about church. Maybe even Emmaus. Picking up shards of glass trying to not get cut, avoiding further pain and minimizing the damage so you can make the best of a bad and disappointing scenario. Into this, this sad busyness, these ladies have no clue what they've walked into. They have no clue the earth-shattering, transformative reality that they're about to encounter because something has changed. And moving on is not an option. Moving on isn't going to happen, and it doesn't happen. And so then we see, secondly, in our text, then giving hope and going to Jesus in verses 3 to 8. Almost every book, movie, employs a very similar idea it's like it's at the it's at the bedrock of almost all like creative writing manuals and like how do you write a book how do you write a story from the oldest hero stories in human history to virtually every major movie from The Lord of the Rings, even in the most silly and trivial of movies like Fifty First Dates with Adam Sandler or a romantic comedy like Sleepless in Seattle, when all hope seems lost, when the night is most dark, when we feel most powerless, helpless, defeated like these ladies, those ladies in verse 3, look at verse 3 with me, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? 
hands full of spices. They don't even have their own strength to go in and clean up the mess. Like they, They're prepared to move on, but they can't move on. They don't have the strength to do it because they, they can't even open up the tomb. Right? Hopeless to move on. Yet in all the movies, in all the stories, even in the ancient hero myths, they all, they all do the same thing. Right when it seems most hopeless, light emerges. Hope is restored. Darkness is turned to light. The hero is not dead. The boy gets the girl. Help comes from the east. Hope is realized. And, well, everything is happily ever after, right? That, that, I mean, that's, that's the stuff of every story that we read. And we might be tempted when we come to this text to think, feel the same way. Because they get there, all's, go, all's hopeless, and boom, Jesus has risen from the dead. But the, here's the thing. We're not reading fiction. This, is, this isn't fiction. This isn't an ancient myth. We've not, we do not have in front of us some story created in the imagination of a mere man. We, we have a story, but it's history. Jesus was a real man who lived 2,000 years ago. He was not some fictional wizard, nor is he some schoolboy, Harry Potterish, imaginary kid. He's not a hero in a mythical story. He's not some character who will resolve the tension of a two-hour movie. He lived as a real human 2,000 years ago in Israel who suffered real pain under a really corrupt religious and evil political system that brutally murdered and crucified him. He was literally really historically dead. And as real as it is, where there's real pain, not simulated for entertainment, these ladies went to mourn it and get over it. And that's why this passage is so shocking, because into real pain and real loss into the circumstances where we, must, where we have to. This isn't a movie. This isn't a story. We, we, we need to move on. We're in real life. We need to clean up the mess and move on. And into that, that instinct that causes us to look and find... Comp- the, there's an instinct in us that... There's a reason why that's in all the stories, because we want it to be there. We, there's something in our hearts that know that there's, there's got to be a way. And... It actually happened in real history. It actually happened. Hope came out of the darkness. It's not just fiction. It's not just a figment of our collective imagination. Because somehow, some way, out of the darkness, out of real death and literal nonfiction tomb, life emerges from the dead, undoing the brokenness that is in the world. Verse 6, look what the angel in verse 6 says, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus. He was crucified. And very simply, he is risen. He is not here. He is alive. He has conquered death. He has risen bodily from the dead. Hope is alive. Just when you turn to grab the trash can to clean up the broken glass, there is no mess. The mess is undone. Death has been overcome. And now there's wine to drink. There's joy out of darkness. 
We saw in verse 6, the angel there is declaring that Jesus is alive, restored, not there. Which is amazing because sin defeated Jesus, suffering the wrath of God. Satan defeated Jesus, having arrayed every possible evil power against him, killing him on the cross. Death itself consumed Jesus as he breathed his last, and yet none of them in this passage could hold him down. None of them could ultimately stop him. He prevailed against them. And in this, Jesus is put forward as a victor. He literally, historically, and really undid the mess of defeat and failure and showed himself successful in defeating sin, Satan, and death itself. That what appeared like a king, a failed experiment has indeed proven itself to be more powerful than the most powerful things humans could possibly imagine, death itself. And in this moment, shows that God's kingdom cannot be stopped by any power or force arrayed against it. But look at verse 7, because verse 7 answers for us a really important question. As glorious as all that is, what does that mean for Jesus' disciples? What does that mean maybe for us? In verse 7, I'll read it for you here. But go... Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. This angel speaks a word of hope to these ladies. These ladies are standing there bewildered. They're, they're, they're shocked. I mean, not only are they shocked Jesus isn't in there, they're shocked at the declaration that he's alive. They're shocked that they're seeing an angel talking to them. Like, talk about mind-blowing. And as they see that, this angel speaks this word of hope. And the reason it's a word of hope is because, as we know, we've seen it. The disciples, they abandoned Jesus. They all abandoned him. Peter, he denied Jesus three times. They're filled with shame. They're filled with fear. Hopeless. And the question is, what would a resurrected Jesus say to them? Or how would he judge them? The angel tells the women there, get the disciples to Galilee. And it says, just as he had told them. And we saw this in chapter 14, and verse 28. Jesus says that he's going to be abandoned. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be delivered up. He's going to be beaten and crucified and dead. And then he would rise from the dead three days later. And then he says, and then, you're all, then we're all going to hang out in Galilee on the top of the mountain. That's chapter 14. And this angel saying, uh, that all happened all of it, and he's in Galilee waiting for you guys. Get there. Send those defeated disciples trying to move on and put the pieces of their life back together to stop moving on and get to Galilee. That's what he's saying. Stop trying to move on and clean up the mess of what you think was failed but is really a successful kingdom and get to Galilee and go to Jesus. But notice there, only one of them is named Peter. Peter's the only one that's named. And I think there's very good reason for this. I think you all probably can ascertain why. His denial of Jesus was epic, was highlighted. It was particularly shameful, particularly cowardly, and yet Jesus wants to be with him. Jesus sends an angel saying, I, I, 
I, I want Peter with me. You, you need to send him. I want Peter to come to Galilee. Not just the disciples. I want Peter. He wants to see him and the other disciples. And we know, we know from the other gospels, Mark doesn't give it, at least in, uh, through verse 8, we, we don't get a picture in Mark of what happened when they get to Galilee, but they, they, get, they get to Galilee, and when they got there, what does Jesus do? He restores Peter. He, he, they're trying to pick up the mess and move on when they're the ones that need to be picked up and cleaned up and restored. And that's what Jesus does. He eats breakfast with them. He feeds them. He restores them and gives them hope that it's not time to move on. It's time to, it's, it's time to work on. Jesus here practices, in, in, in Galilee, he practices hospitality to the people who abandoned them. He gave them a fish breakfast, right? He spent time with them, reconnecting. The power of Jesus' resurrection would not just say to death, you don't get the last word. His resurrection says to sin, to abandonment, to cowardice, to relational fracture, none of you get the last word. He is out to bring total restoration, not just from death to life, but the restoration of all things. All things being renewed. All things being made right in Christ before God. Jesus does not just reassemble the wine glass. He soaks up all the wine from the rug, fills the cup. He does a full cleanup job. Then he says, drink up. He throws a party, like literally a party on the beach holds a feast, eating breakfast together. And for us, he calls us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He, he calls us to a future feast where we will be with him in, in person, him bodily, alive, partying with him in heaven. And it's, it, it's, there's even more than that here. There's more hope for us in this. Because this our hope of experiencing that and accessing all of that is all resting in God doing it all, not us. God is doing for us, as you've heard all morning this morning, because it's been thick in my mind this week as I've been reading this text. God does for us what he demands from us. God does all the work in this text. There's deep hope for us. We see it in verses 3 and 4 and in verse 8. By God's power, the weakness of humankind, mankind, the power of God is on display. There's a, there's a great irony in this text. Great irony. Because the women in this text, all throughout Mark, they are, they're, they're the one, like, relatively consistent, not entirely, but relatively consistent, good examples of, of people that worship and Respond rightly to God in this, throughout, all throughout Mark. The religious leaders, the political leaders, even the disciples, they all to one degree or another are exposed for their ignorance, their failures, over and over and over and over again, all throughout the book of Mark. And women all throughout tend to be people of faith, tend to be ones who appear like they're getting it, responding rightly to Jesus, who worship him, who reach out and touch his robe, who, who, who pour oil over his feet and worship him. They perceive him to be God. Yet, here, 
it appears the women have reached their breaking point. Their strength has been, has been broken here. The women here are defeated. They're moving on. They are too weak to have realized that they can't move a stone. They didn't think about that ahead of time, right? They, 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 you see that even the weakness of the ones who are put forward as the examples and the strong ones throughout the book of Mark. They're walking with spices that they may not even be able to use. They're not strong enough to do what they must to move on. And then in verse 8, after being told to go tell the disciples, rather than saying, okay, shiny angel, thanks for the good news, we'll tell them straight away, look at verse 8. They went out, fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that's how Mark ends, which is, um, whew, I'm to do, I'll say one sentence about it. Scholars are either, there's a split, they, they, they debate, is this Mark's original intended ending? And then they make all kinds of interesting arguments to support that. Or they say, which I think is most likely the case, the second one, uh, that um, it was, it's very common among older scrolls for the, introductions and the conclusions of writings to be lost because they're obviously the most exposed and so that's it was probably destroyed or or lost early very early on in the history of the church whatever the case it's an awkward ending whatever it is it's awkward whether it's intentional or not it's an awkward ending you you don't get this sense of glory you get the sense of human weakness and dependence right you see these women who all along are these great examples, and in the very end, they're fleeing, do, not doing what they're told. You see human weakness come through. God, however, undoes the mess. He does for us what we cannot do. Verse 4, the stone is rolled away. God sent an angel to roll that stone away. Right? God di- rolled the stone away for those ladies. And now, news does get to the disciples. We don't see it in Mark, but the news does get to the disciples. They get to Galilee, and their messes are undone by Jesus and they're restored. God makes a way. God does. He, he presses through and is victorious over our corruption. Death does not stop him. Sin does not stop him. Satan does not stop him. He makes a way. And the hope of resurrection is this. That your hope is not dependent upon your ability to make it happen. Your hope does not depend upon your ability to reconstruct broken things or your ability to move on and, resol- and, and be resolute to face the next thing with strength. Like the, it's, that your hope is not in your abilities. You don't have to be strong. It's not, up to, it's, it's not yours to even be optimistic. You don't have to be optimistic. It's not up to you to be hopeful. It's not up to you to be good enough. You, you can't do any of those sufficiently long enough or intensely enough to actually accomplish everything that would need, be needed in this world. And that is precisely what Jesus has, in his resurrection came to do. It's the hope of the gospel and the reality of the resurrection that God reassembles the wine glass, and fills it up for you to drink. 
that God does the work in us, and we simply receive his power and his grace and his love and his work in faith. He does not reassemble it and then say, okay, now, guys, what I, want, what I need you to do is I need you to get on the floor, soak up all that wine, and remove the shards from the liquid, clean the rug, and drink the rug. I, I got the glass, but you, know, you guys need to get on the floor and finish up the job. And as you do, it's whatever wine you do get out of the carpet is murky. It's got hair in it from the dog and other people. And the carpet's still stained from your half job that you called good. Like, that's, that's, that's what our attempts to try and undo the brokenness in the world end up looking like. In our own souls, this is what it looks like. But instead, God does it all. Your joy is not dependent upon your maintaining hope. It, the gospel moving forward ultimately wasn't dependent upon those ladies hearing that shiny angel and then going, we're going to go to Galilee. Come on, disciples. Like, the, 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 God used them, no doubt, but he, he worked through them and he accomplished it. It was not ultimately in their hands. Your joy, then, is not dependent upon your maintaining hope. Jesus rose from the dead, and his power and his life does for you what you cannot and does in you what you need. So you, do you feel like quitting at times? Do you feel like, just need to pick up the mess and move on. Well, you don't have to be strong. You don't have to figure out a new way forward. Jesus has done that for you. And that's what the resurrection is for us. The disciples were called to Galilee because that is where Jesus was. And we are called today to go to Jesus because it is in his resurrected life that there is hope, that there is hope for change, where weakness is transformed into strength, where our fear is turned into joy, where our fleeing is turned into worship. The resurrection changes everything. It undoes death, broken relationships. It overcomes our corruption. It makes us righteous. It reassembles you and makes you whole. So, I'm not an angel. <laughs> but if there were one here, I think they would be saying the same thing to us. Don't give up and move on. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Find your soul filled with delight of new hope and life in Him. That is the message that Jesus started trying to tell people in chapter 1. And here it is, in chapter 16, made real in history. He has really done the things that all the movies, all the myths, and all the stories of history would like to be. He's trans transcended story into reality, and we have real, actual hope. That we don't have to move on in life, but we can go to him and find hope and restoration.